I live in the imposter's body more than I live in my own body. When you get good news and you're like, when are they going to figure this out? You start to do all that talk to yourself. And that's when you get pulled into the sort of imposter syndrome instead of really saying, I got this because I am who I am. I deserve this. I worked hard for it. And I am just who I am. I'm in the right place at the right time. There are so many reasons I don't have to feel like I don't deserve this. Hi, welcome back to Beeple Begin the podcast that is all about mindset and tools to move you into action and how we can get out of our own way. I'm Christina Barcy, your host and creator of Beeple Begin, and I am so excited to share this episode with you. We are still on the topic of imposter syndrome, and this conversation I'm about to share with you is so candid and honest and authentic. And that is because it is with a very dear friend of mine, Greg Locklear, who I haven't seen in person for at least a year because he was traveling the world doing amazing work. Greg's background includes producing an award-winning indie documentary called Corman's World, Exploits of a Hollywood Rebel. He has been script coordinator on TV series like I Love Dick, Transparent, Happy, and Project Blue. He traveled to my home country, Hungary, to be the director's assistant on Marco Polo, and most recently he was script coordinator on the Netflix series On Fate, The Winx Saga, Season 1, and very happy to reveal that he is now a staff writer of Season 2 of Fate, The Winx Saga. My friend Greg is finally back in LA, and the night we had this conversation was only his second night at his, I might say, gorgeous new home in Silver Lake with his amazing partner. And I brought my lapel mics and field recording device so we could talk casually and comfortably, which we very much did. This talk takes place in Greg's bed while we drink champagne to celebrate and relate over old cafe conversations about how we would build our dreams, the difficulties of living in Los Angeles, our shared lives in the hospitality industry, and of course, more specifically, imposter syndrome. Here is my conversation with Greg Locklear. So I'm here with Greg Locklear, and we are in Silver Lake. We're on location, which doesn't happen anymore because of COVID. We all know that. But he's a very, very good friend of mine, and we're going to tell you all about that. And we're actually sitting in his brand new, would you call it an apartment? This is a house. You're in a house. Yeah, it's a house. It's gorgeous. It's Spanish style, I'd say. 1920s. 1920s Spanish influence, Hollywood. Yes. We're in his bed. It's got a lot of good energy. So much good energy. My bed and the house. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And you've only been here for 48 hours, correct? 48 hours, correct. Which is... I feel so honored. You are, you are my first friend oh, to be in this house. I love that. Thank you Actually. for that. This moment has been amazing so far, and you guys are going to love this conversation. <laughs> Greg and I met at my last day job, which was also, well, it wasn't your last day job, but it was the last 
type of day job you had, which was mm-hmm. hospitality slash restauranturing, whatever we want to call that, yes. serving. You also managed at a couple of restaurants after that, one of which I also worked at once, not at the same time, but we did grace some other grounds together separately in a weird way. So I will leave that restaurant nameless because (laughs) (laughs) that's a whole can of worms (laughs) that we could get into for too long. But it was a place that kind of motivates you in a way that other places might not because of the level of strain, stress, and physically, emotionally. It's just something that everyone that works there that I that I've known and takes it on in a way that feels like you have to bring a different character to work just as armor Mm -hmm. in order to get through it. Yes. And many people did that. And I remember you left before I did. And I remember the moments of, of you desperately needing to get out. It becomes this desperate thing for many of us. I cried on the way to work every day for the last... I mean, probably six months. That's, that is that is not that's not a that's not a lie. I know you've said that to Will, me many times. Would you know my my ex husband would drive me to work sometimes, and I literally would cry in the car, and it would take probably about twenty minutes to a half hour for me to go in there. Honestly. Wow. Yep. It it's it's one of those jobs, mm-hmm. especially for people like artists, which many, many mm-hmm. people who work in places like this are artists. And that's mm-hmm. why we have these jobs is so that we can do the art the other half of the day. But when you work at a place like this, there really isn't another half of the day. No, it's like a third of the day or yeah. like an eighth of the day or and whatever. And you're dreading. Yeah. You spend that whole eighth of the day dreading the thing, mm-hmm. right? So that's, that's the circumstances that we met under. Mm-hmm. And then there was that moment where you decided you had enough. Yeah. And you, and you left. I did. And I, I think I was like, what are you going to do? And you're like, I'm going to write. Know. <laughs> you said, I'm going to write. Yeah. Yeah. And you also said, I don't know. But you yeah. said that you were going to write. I, I was like, I don't know. I think I'm going to write, you know, but yeah. 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 I, I knew like, what I, I wanted to do. I don't know do. what I'm going to do, but I'm going to write. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, I don't even know what that feels. How do you do that? Yeah. How do you just go? I, I couldn't wrap my head around it. And what year was that? Do you remember? Oh, God. That was probably 2014, I think. So six year, about six years ago. Wow. So I mm-hmm. had just started there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... we. Did I train you? Probably. I feel like I trained probably. you. Probably. Yeah, at least one night. I we think in the penthouse. S- we, in the penthouse, and then we sat in the... That'll that give you some clue. Dining room <laughs> where we were. Yeah, <laughs> wink, wink. Los Beverly Angeles, Hills. The penthouse. Okay. Yeah. Um, we were in a, the the private dining room that was by the kitchen, <clears throat> and doing our side work. And we, I think, it was the first time you and I really connected. I don't know. I think you probably were also. I just recognized a, a, a kindred spirit in this industry because you know, I think we kind of started talking about this stuff right away, honestly. I don't remember, I don't remember what that. our specific conversation was, but we were like folding napkins or doing something very tedious. But what struck me with you, and it's sort of how I, you know, survived that was that you just showed up 100%. Like I would never have known. Mm. We talked about our dreams and our hopes 
not in a way of we weren't resentful or lamenting lamenting about it. I think we both were just like you know really building optimism together and I think that mm. struck me about you when we met I don't remember specifically what we talked about but I just remember where we were and how I felt about you and then we started working together a lot mm. and so because we were working together so much and pulling our money you know we talked because that's what you get to do when you're standing at the side of the dining room watching everybody else you know enjoy their families or their whatever you know their yeah. meals and conversations and we got to have our personal time yeah wow it's it feels so distant in so many ways i know it does it's six years it feels like 16 years actually to me it kind of does I don't, we, I we barely all remember it i think between the two of us we've made 16 years worth of transitions mm-hmm. <laughs> A hundred percent. I agree. Especially you, you traveled the world. Okay. Let's talk about that a little bit and then we're going to get into it. But because from there, so, so you left, I will say the name of the rest. So you left that restaurant and you went on to do some really amazing things and you, you traveled the world a bit and you went to my home country yeah. For to do some shooting. Can you r- remind me what position you had on you were on shooting Marco Polo? Yes. Which was a series yes. on Netflix? Uh, yes, it was. Yeah. yeah. And what was your position on that crew? So, I worked on season 2 of Marco Polo and I was the director's assistant. So, essentially, That's a big deal. it was a huge deal actually and it was a position that a friend of mine had had for the first season. And she was promoted to be an associate producer and then, you know, basically was like, hey, I need to fill this position. Do you want to do this? And at the time, again, I was hired to write a pilot. So I was writing a pilot for a producer. There are so many journeys that happen in between there. But when this happened, of course, I was like, absolutely, because I love to travel and I wanted to break into television. You were married at the time. And I was married, yeah. So it was, there were a lot of considerations, but the thing is at the time, my ex-husband was very supportive of that for me. So, you know, and it just, all of it made sense. It checked every box. It was an opportunity to work in television. It was taking the position of one of my best friends who had already built this great network of people on the show. She knew everybody. Everybody knew her. So I was stepping into something that was already sort of golden for me. Warm waters. Yeah, warm waters, 100%. And, um, you know, she gave me the deal on the directors. And so we had four directors. So basically my job was to go on location and assist the directors, which at the time I had no fucking clue what that meant i never worked on production i had common sense about it mm-hmm. sort of knew it but you don't know really until you're like thrown into the fire and then oh you're like God. oh it is a complete it's a completely foreign language to me mm-hmm. so you know i interviewed with the showrunner and one of the producers and you know honestly i was like i was honest about what my limitations were in my experience. I I didn't try to like pretend to be something that I wasn't. I just related to them on a level of these are my goals. This is what I've done so far. And, you know, what I know is that coming from restaurant in, you do get such good 
like people skills and reading skills and intuition. It builds intuition. You problem solve under pressure. You, Mm -hmm. all of the things that I learned in restaurants actually translated perfectly to production. Yes, it does. It does. I've noticed that as well. Totally. It's completely layered into the life I've built for myself now. And yeah. it's so applicable. And I love those moments where I notice it's working for me. Yes. Because it's this thing we hated so much yeah, that we talked yeah. about. 100%. To get absolutely. Started. And it was really cool to see that. So I love yeah. that you just said that. Yeah. How did you just do it anyway, knowing that you felt like this was something you've never done before? It was a foreign language. What gave you that bravado to just go for it and, and know that you can do it and you'll figure it out? You know, that's a really good question, actually, because, you know, there's a part of me and a side of me that's very afraid to do things. And there's a side of me that is gritty as hell and is just willing to take the adventure. Yeah. But because I was stepping into something, you know, my I trusted my friend I liked the people that I met. Like, I also went there looking to see if it was something I wanted to do. I I probably would have taken it anyway, but if I'm being honest. Mm -hmm. But I liked them a lot, and they were a family. So the environment helped make it feel safe? It did, and the people, too, because they were just saying the right things. I'm like, I I just, there's an intuition that I have about people, you know, and we'll get into this probably a little bit later, but I originate this way. This is where I've grown to be as a human being, but also being in restaurants. There's a certain requirement of reading a table, reading people, having empathy, mm-hmm. you know, being humble. And I saw all of these qualities in the people that I was talking to, especially in this interview, and was like, I really want to do this. And I love to travel. And I really wanted to get into television. I mean, that's my, my dream. So right. I said, hell yeah. Whatever happens... I'll figure it out. You know, I I know the journey is not going to be easy. I knew that I was scared. You know, I didn't speak Hungarian. You and I talked a little bit about culture and I asked you a lot of questions and I did a lot of research. I just did the things that were natural to me so that I could try to figure this out a little bit in advance, knowing full well, as we do in restaurants, you don't know what the night's going to bring and you have to be ready for that. But it also helps us to prepare as much as we can mm-hmm. just to feel like we are we have some sort of arsenal to pull from. Knowing that we're probably going to have to throw all that away and do something completely different. Totally. <laughs> maybe that... that night, maybe the next night. With yeah. the next, and even in restaurants with the next table, you're like, this table is one way and then you get another table afterwards. So you just have to roll with the punches. And the world we're living in now is a very good example of that, of mm-hmm. the fact that Hey, you know, you have the skills that you have and you may have lived life a certain way for so long, but when circumstances change, you have to just roll with it and take what you have and apply it. Mm-hmm. And that's what it boils down to. So I want to clue people into what we're talking about yeah. today because we're already touching on it. And so basically I thought of you because after our restaurant tour experience together, where we started to have those conversations a little bit. I don't feel like we really connected deeply until after you left where I remember the last night when you were like, look, I'm going to listen. This is my first podcast that I created called Dimension when mm-hmm. I had the sci-fi yeah, totally. and you were telling me about your documentary that you'd done and you were like, I'm going to listen to it and I want to talk to you after and I, I want to have conversations with you. And that meant so much to me that I was, that you even remembered that I had 
that I'd said that at any point and that you were making a mental note to kind of circle back to me at some point and have a fun creative conversation or who knows, I didn't know what. And I thought that was so awesome. But people do things like that all the time in a way. And I'm like, okay, well, we'll see. But then you did, you showed up and then I showed up and we, we started hanging out. We started yeah. doing, we would, we would go to Cal. Uh, what graffiti. was it? We would go to graffiti yeah, cafe, which doesn't which exist is anymore. Not there anymore. It's sweet greens now, but whatever. I know, and it was such a cool space. We had a fireplace. Everything was white. There was a lot of artists mm-hmm. there. It was very cool. Mm-hmm. But we would go meet up there, like the very cool people that we were <laughs> at graffiti, and write. Also, have these conversations, and the conversations we had was always about the creative process and our dreams, what we were trying to do. Mm-hmm. Like I was still working at this restaurant at the time when we started talking, but we also talked about what it means to work in this city. And for us, that's Los Angeles or to try to work. I was still trying, I was trying to work in that city and I hadn't figured out how to do that and feel authentic. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I used those words yet at the time, but I feel like you probably did. Maybe I'm not sure, but I know that that's what I wanted and I didn't know how to get there, but talking to you was a nice start. You were really at the beginning. I know, but I was just going to say that. It's so funny to me because even when in those beginning conversations, you coming at me that way, you know, I'm, I'm so eager and willing to talk about this kind of, these kinds of things because I just love, I love this. I love what I do. I love being creative. I love talking to other creative people. It fuels me. I have a passion for it, but I also am like, why the fuck are you coming to me about this? You know what I'm saying? I was like, I, I just started this. I don't know. I don't know which end is up either yet. And, but, but I loved you... that. Cause you were very transparent. Like you said, even walking on set in Hungary, <laughs> like you were like, I'd never, I hadn't thought about it this way until you mention it. But, but I loved that you were like, I struggle with these things and mm-hmm. what I'm talking about. I keep dancing around it, but we're talking about imposter syndrome today and comparison and what it feels like to try to do yeah. the thing we know we're supposed to be doing yeah. but somehow we still feel like we don't belong or we don't deserve it yeah or there's people doing it better yes and so not not to take i want you to finish your sentence no that's i mean that's exactly it i mean it, it's funny because talking about hungary i remember my first night in budapest I went to my friend Allie's apartment. She's an, she was an associate producer. She was my friend who got bumped up and she had a bunch of things on the table for me laid out, which was a schedule. I'd never seen a production schedule in my life ever. Mm. And I look at it now and I'm like, whatever, I know what this is. I can read it backwards and forwards. I can make a production schedule now. But if any lay person were to look at a production schedule, it would look like, you know, I, it would look like alien writing. Talk about overwhelm. Totally. And yeah. I want to, so when I arrive in Budapest that night, I get to the table and I'm like, what is this? And Allie, it's so funny because right when I arrived, she's like, oh, I'm so glad. Just make yourself at home. And I, I remember her text, which was like, hey, so I left the production schedule on the table. You are not going to understand anything on it. Don't worry. You will. Mm-hmm. I'll explain it to you. You'll get it. Don't worry about it. And to, to our point about imposter syndrome, it was the moment where I'm like, why am I here? 
Ugh. who hired me to do this job. Why am I here? I have no idea how to do this job. I don't know how to do this job. I don't know anything about production, really. I thought I did. Turns out, I don't know a goddamn thing. That's so scary. It was scary. It was really scary on my first night. And it's not like taking a job in Los Angeles necessarily. We're shooting on location. This is a $100 million Netflix show with horses and costumes and period. And whether or not you liked Marco Polo, we had a big fan base, but whether or not you liked Marco Polo. I watched it. it, I loved it. I ended up loving working on that season and I have so many amazing memories and I learned so much. But at that moment... I felt so overwhelmed and I felt like I was, I mean, I didn't understand anything and being in Budapest, everything being in Hungarian and sure, people speak English, whatever, but it was just a sort of an assault and I really didn't feel like, I didn't feel like I had earned mm. the, where I was in I that moment. Do you remember you talking to me about that, about the need to earn it? And yes. I relate to that because I have realized that I quantify my my worth with how much work I do, mm-hmm. which is probably why I'm a little bit of a workaholic mm-hmm. because I'm trying to prove to myself there's no one else watching. Totally. I, I'm the most solo person in the universe in terms of work. Like I'm just alone at home, like doing my thing, mm-hmm. but I'm now transitioning because I just hired an assistant. Woohoo. And now there's mm-hmm. someone witnessing. I have more witnesses now, not just her. She's fucking amazing. But there's other people witnessing my life. And I realized that no one was witnessing my life for a long time, but I was also just doing it for me. Mm-hmm. And I, and that's a strange thing to do who to prove to myself my own worth through overworking mm-hmm. through trying to find value that way yes. and try and like feeling like, you know, it bleeds into the, what, what am I doing and, and who's going to see it? And do I belong here? And mm-hmm. how do I prove that I belong here? Mm-hmm. And there's other people doing it better. And I'm when watching, will they find out that I don't belong here? Yeah. That's when will, when will they figure it out? When will they figure it out that I'm a mm-hmm. fucking hoax? Yeah. Like when will they figure it out? And who's, who's it going to be? What's going to happen then? Like, and you spend time waiting for that, actually. Yeah, and, and, it's, it's that anxiety, right? Of mm-hmm. like, when are they going to figure it out? I, was, I, I don't necessarily feel like that echo has left my life at all. I don't know that it ever will, honestly. But mm-hmm. it's a different thing now for me than it was then, honestly. I mean, at that time, I was just so excited, too, on yeah. top of it. But... Eventually, production's hard. Production is long hours. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of opinions, a lot of egos, and you really have to read people, like, to a T. So, again, getting back to the restaurant background, I was like, I had a leg up in that regard, but still, I wanted to prove myself, and I wanted to feel a certain way, but then I also wanted to, you know, keep my cover, because I was just like, you're paying me this money, and you're paying for my food and my apartment, and you paid for my plane ticket, and you're about to fly me to Malaysia to shoot the second half of the season and put mm-hmm. me up there and do the whole thing. And I just, you know, you feel like a year ago I was struggling. A year ago I was waiting tables. A year ago I was wearing, you know, a white jacket and a black bow tie and waiting on celebrities and, you know, witnessing that life that I coveted mm-hmm. as well. So were you afraid to let them know that that was your life before or no, what I found was that every, almost every creative person 
almost every creative person has that story. Mm. There are a few that don't. This is a generalization, but well, so we're in many Los Angeles. people in this in this city yeah. and in this industry have that story. We have, everybody understands what it's what it's like to have to have to have a survival job. Yeah. And to pay the bills and to get put down because you want to pursue something that's creative and artistic and it's not you're not a lawyer, you're not a doctor, you're not, you know, all yeah. the things that and you know, I was told. Those things are the jobs that the people have that want to be creative, you know? Totally. And you know, for us And that's scary for them. Yes. Too, and still and, and I, I only bring that up because yeah. the, the the restaurant world is a very LA thing for mm-hmm. the people that work there are being creative. Mm-hmm. That's not yes. necessarily everywhere. Yes. And not everyone who's listening is from Los Angeles. Majority are, but not everyone. Right. There's a lot of people from other, other States and some people in other countries, but the, the reality is they could be doing whatever the day job is, whatever they, their parents wanted them to go to school for yeah, or whatever they got, whatever they were good at. Cause we all are good at many things. Yeah. And then you go the safe route, right? So how do you break out of that? That's a whole nother podcast. Yeah. But okay, so I I love this conversation, but I want to I want to we're gonna get back to that. But I want to ask you how how you identify as far as you can interpret like, that however you would like. Huh? That's such a how do I identify? I am a. It's so interesting because I would say I'm queer, firstly. I'm cisgender, male, queer, gay. You know, it's such a fluid question, Mm -hmm. but I would say primarily I identify that way. Do you identify as an artist? I identify as an artist, as a creative, as a writer. Yeah. Okay. As a writer. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I I know you as well. Primarily, but I think it it trickles into other things for sure. And I have other fancies and things like that that I don't like to discount necessarily. But primarily, I would say, you know, I've wanted to be, honestly, I've wanted to be a TV writer for my entire life. Okay. It's it's the thing. It's the thing. It's the thing. So tell me about that. Tell me about when that dream started for you and what it was like growing up for you. And I also want to know when you knew those identifiers, Mm -hmm. when, when did that happen for you? Was it, did you always feel like you were queer? I don't know if that word existed when we were little yet in the context it does now. Yeah. It was probably more, a little more radical and sort of leftist at the time. I think it's been, it's a safer, in my opinion, it's a safer term now that sort of speaks to, you know, I, I would have said I was gay five years ago but I think my sexuality and which informs my creativity is more nuanced mm-hmm. than that mm-hmm. so queer so gives me a you? bit of a more sort of more space to play in actually so I don't have to limit myself in my life or in my creative sort of pursuits you know I love that as a definition yeah because that was going to be my next question yeah so great I appreciate that yeah so what was it like growing up and when did you know that this was your dream and, mm-hmm. and that you were queer? Yeah. I mean, I've always known. I grew up in a small suburb of Philadelphia on the border of Delaware and Pennsylvania. And my town was very conservative, you know, lots of veterans. It is a working class 
area. I mean, it's built up so much now into suburbia, but at the time it was just sort of building up. And my father grew up there as a child. My mother grew up there as a child. Their families are very blue collar, working class, you know, military, you know, some of my family members worked in refineries and we grew up very sort of lower middle class. I never felt like that. I never felt a class distinction growing up, but I did feel persecution because the town that I grew up in was very Christian and very homogenous. I grew up Catholic. Okay. Yes. But there were Christians, Catholics, you know, everybody in the mix. But there was a lot of anti Semitism, a lot of homophobia growing up, like overt homophobia growing up. Racism. It's a very it's a town where like it's very segregated. You know, there's a township that's right next door that is black that it was struggling and poor and the white neighborhood that I grew up in that was adjacent was very sort of rural and protected, even though we were like lower middle class, it was still very much delineated. And so there was that, there was always that awareness as well. And I knew that I was different, that I was gay, that I was queer from a very young age. I was very free in my expression of that. I was very femme. I was highly femme as a child. I did dance routines. I choreographed dance routines. I acted. I wrote poetry. I mean, I, I and these are things that I'm assigning. It's like you were just really creative. I was. I'm, I'm assigning. I'm assigning gender to it to prove a point, which is these were the. That's how I was regarded. The misogyny. It's actually misogyny in my in my mind. Looking back, mm. I don't gender those things now, obviously. But at the time, it felt very gendered to me, and mm. I knew at a very young age that I shouldn't be doing those things because I'm a boy. Wow. You know, so, and I, boys don't act that way. Boys play sports, boys, and it's a very classic story, but it's, that was my childhood. My dad was very much cisgender, white, even though he's not really white. He, my father's father is Native American Ah. and our tribe, which is Lumbee, is a mixture of white euro black and native american blood so it's a wow. it's a really it's a really interesting story the story of of our of our family but i did not know that yeah it explains your lovely bone structure <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you know there's a lot there were a lot of complications with that you know as far as my relationship with my father my my father really defined manhood to me he was very sort of classic jock you know, cisgender, white passing male. And he had me when he was very young. My parents were 20 when they had me. So they were very much caught in their lives and indoctrinated by their parents, specifically my father. My mother's side was was different, but there was a lot of racial trauma there and a lot of homophobia. But I do think that from a very young age, to get back to our topic is... I knew that I had to be somebody different than who I was because I was getting judged for it. I was getting abused for it. I was getting called out sometimes about it. I was humiliated by my father, by friends of my father and my mother, family members. I mean, everybody. So really intimate relationships were calling you out. Yes. Who also loved me in the same breath. So again, you have... Which to them was probably their way of loving you in the moment. Yes. Not not trying to protect me from going down a certain path. 
So when you're a young queer kid in that situation, you know, which is the story, you sort of bifurcate. So you just become two people. You become the person that you have to present who is going to keep you safe Mm. and, you know, not raise any questions or conversations. And then you're who you are, which is, you know, as you get older, you learn to secret away. Wow. Until you get into high school and you're a teenager and then you're like, fuck you or whatever. You test those boundaries or you find your tribe who allows you to like engage that way. So talk yeah. about impostering, right? Yeah. Like really. That's where it starts, I think. Really. I having... think a lot of people have this story. I think, you know, think a lot of people right. can find another, some kind of pivot where they had to split into two. I mean, I think that mm-hmm. even my, you know, my father, for example, had to do that growing up. I think he had to, in order to escape abuse that was happening in his family without getting into the backstory, he had to become a different person than to, protect. He, to protect himself than who he was. And, you know, we, as much as we come against each other and we have beef with each other because we do right now, I think that's what he had to do to survive. And I understand that. So to the point of what you're trying to do here, I think that is something that follows you through Mm -hmm. life and especially follows you into creative endeavors and career and avocation. To me, this is even more than a career. It's an avocation. I've suffered through so much to have this, to continue to have this, to continue to grow this, but that never goes away. That imposter never goes away. So what does that mean to you when you say it never goes away? Mm -hmm. It's something that you have to work alongside or how does that play out for you? Meaning that, so first I want to just point out that I I think it's the experience is different for everyone, but it is a normal experience. Mm -hmm. Like you said, it's probably very relatable. Mm -hmm. I think we all have our version of our story this way. And if, and some people might not even be aware that this is what it is. And there were definitely moments where I didn't know there was a word for this. It's like, oh, that's what that is that I'm feeling. So whatever stage people are at, and I think it fabricates in whatever way it does. And, you know, there are moments where it goes away because you're busy working through, like, just doing the thing, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just put it aside and get, get through it. But yeah. when you say that it doesn't necessarily go away, what does that mean for you? I guess, God, it's so, it's, it's, it's interesting because it just touches on so much. But where I am right now, I'm in a place where I'm trying to make friends with my imposter Mm. a little bit, but I wasn't always there. I think it becomes a part of you because it, it happens in your most formative years. For me, it happened so young. I mean, you know, I mean, I was probably like three or four when this really started happening, when I'm having conscious memories of, of literally splitting apart, right. Yeah. To survive and hearing comments and, and all that. So I think you just, it becomes normal. And so, you know, you just, I live with it still every day, but I feel like now I've learned to, it's because I've done this kind of work. Mm-hmm. I've, I've analyzed it. I've, I've thought about it. I've meditated on it. I've talked about it with friends, with lovers, with my partner, with my family, even confronted some family members about it. So it's, it's just, it's a part of the, it's always going to be a part of who I am. So it's super rooted in 
totally. in your whole person, not just as a creative person, but in, in everything all of it, you've had to do this mm-hmm. sort of coming to terms or and or using it to your advantage for a while, right? Sometimes, yeah, sometimes. And sometimes, you know, it's like, I think, you know, to our conversation earlier, when things start happening for you, mm-hmm. when you get news, you got that job. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen for me when I don't get the job because I, it, the imposter part is the failure part in a weird way. It's the, it's the we know what that feels fractured like. part. I know what that feels like. Yeah. And so that I, I live in the imposter's body more than I live in my own body. And that's mm-hmm. what I've learned to do to survive. So now in my life, when things start to go well for me, for example, when you're living in COVID and you're still employed and you're like, why am, you know, why I, am I, I okay? It, why no am I okay? Is. And these other people aren't okay. And you feel really bad about that. That's one thing. But, you know, taking that away for now, when you get good news and you're like, when are they going to figure this out? You start to do all that talk to yourself. And that's when you get pulled into the sort of imposter syndrome. Instead of really saying, I got this because I am who I am. I deserve this. I worked hard for it. And I am just who I am. I'm in the right place at the right time. There are so many reasons I don't have to feel like I don't deserve this. And and that's when it really comes up for me. Is That's when my imposter sort of takes over basically saying that to me you don't really deserve this you didn't really work that hard for this or you're gonna fail at this or do you think that that happens or that pops up more or how or well you you can answer this but when you start to succeed you mentioned that it's when you start to succeed but as success becomes easier does it feel like that is when the imposter comes in more? Is it because it's... I'm not there yet. I mean, everything, you know, I'm... Right now, I still feel like I have to work really hard for everything. Okay. I have to work extra for everything. I still have to do 10 other things that I can't say, hey, I have a union behind me. Hmm. You know, I'm because I'm just breaking in right now i mean this is my first i'm getting staffed on a show it's like i'm breaking through the ceiling wait what show are you getting staffed on at the netflix show that i was producing in the uk they you know i was working to get yes tell us what it is it's called fate the wink saga it's a netflix show yeah it's the first season so i'm writing the second season and congratulations thank you it was it's really i'm really proud and really happy you should be i worked really hard for it but I worked really hard for it. I mean, yeah. you know, I blood, sweat, and tears. I had a rash for three months in the UK because I was so stressed out because I was doing <sighs> so much because I was working 15-hour days in the rain. I mean, I, I'm willing to put in the work. Hmm. But the funny thing is that when you finally do step into that, which is to your point, when it becomes easier, meaning you don't have to stand in the rain for 15 hours. You don't have to run someone's coffee. You don't have to do all of those things. It's still there. You know, it still Mm. is there a little bit. So how do you work with it now? So you mentioned that you have, you know what the correct rhetoric is, right? And I I use the word correct, but meaning the one that's going to be the, literally just there's the negative self-talk or there's the positive self-talk, right? So there's the way that we know is going to, make us feel better 
but sometimes we don't buy it, right? So what do you, what do you do in that situation where the the negative is rearing its ugly head and you're like, do you, I mean, I'm sure there's moments where we lean into that, but as you've grown, what has become the thing that helps you lean more into the positive? Yeah. I talk about it. Honestly, I share it because mm. I feel like everybody can relate to it, honestly. And I think and that's really people powerful. need to hear that. That, that. that alone is something to acknowledge as growth, right? Because I yeah. I have friends that, and myself too, in my moments when I was at that point where, and there, there's still areas in my life that are this way, where I just, the awareness isn't there yet. Right. Where you're like, oh, I don't I didn't know that this was something that everyone goes through. So that alone is a win. And then yeah. and then it's the what, what can I if I trust that, like trusting that that is true. Yeah. Is like step one. Yeah, I think I think absolutely. And I think also at the foundation you do, you really have to sort of stay rooted in your humility, too. And that's the thing, because. I think I meet a lot of people, especially in Los Angeles, as we know, people that are posturing, people that are acting like they have all their shit together. And you're like, you don't really have your shit together. And that's okay. It's okay that you don't have your shit together. It's okay that you don't believe you deserve this. It's okay. Well, they're suffering you... from the same thing. Exactly. Right. right. Yeah. And they're just, you they know, don't know how to cope. They don't know how to cope. And I, and I, if I meet those people, if I like them <laughs> generally and generally I like everybody, so it's good for everybody. But you know, I, I try to talk in a way that's like, Hey, you don't have to fake it with me. You don't have to do that because the real work right now is to talk about it and share it because everybody's feeling this way and people need to hear that because that's the hope. That's the beacon of light that everybody needs. We all need that bit of light and yeah, we're not alone. We're not alone. And I think that's the biggest thing that destroys the imposter a bit because then you're just in company. You're in company with other human beings. And it's not a creation of something that's external to you. It is actually a living human being saying, babe or dude or mama or whatever. Like, I get it. I'm with you. Like, and, and that I've been on the receiving end of that. And I've also given that to other people. And it's been incredibly beneficial both ways, honestly, to talk mm -hmm. about it, which is why I was happy to receive your email because I think it's an important thing to talk about it. For, every, for everybody. It doesn't even matter what industry you're in. If you want to be better and you want to be happy and you want to pursue whatever your dream is, you have to make peace with the imposter. I think it's a critical thing to find happiness, honestly, I do. Oh, I love that. And I, yeah. I also love, you made a really... I think important point in saying that you can be the receiver and you can coach someone else yes. at the same time. Yes. And sometimes we think, well, if I'm the one having issues, how can I possibly yes. help someone yeah. else? Which... I have to, I don't know what I'm talking about yeah. or I can't do this thing because I, I don't, you know, but it's like, you do know what you're talking about. Because the, if we're all relating, totally. if we're all experiencing this, that mm -hmm. means that we've all experienced it. And we've gotten through it, meaning we've come to this point in life somehow, <laughs> if it's mm -hmm. in the past. Yeah. So if someone is in a different moment and we're now okay, then we can then coach someone in the moment they're having, knowing that we might be there again, but at least we know what it was like to get through it because we're not in that emotional state. It's just like comforting someone who might be crying. Yeah. We're not crying at this moment, so I can help you yeah. get through this particular emotion 
it's it can feel emotional. Yeah, it's kind of like emotions. It to me, it's always emotional. Yeah. I'm I'm I feel like it's always rooted in emotion. And there's something <laughs> that I learned that I thought was really interesting that emotions emotions always felt uncontrollable to me growing up. Like mm-hmm. oh, you can't control them. And there's something that just happened to you, but the but okay, fine. So emotions come up, etc. And from there, what if you just let them? And then, then they pass. They're like weather. I, I think that's I think that's the thing is everybody feels like I felt this way. Emotions can take physical space. They can. And if you let them, right? Yes. So then that person, that imposter, becomes a physical being and it becomes another person if you let that happen. Mm, and like a character in your life. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And so I think really you know there are lots of i mean there are lots of things that i do to pull myself out of that i mean there's this like great okay so talk we talk to people yes talk about it talk that's a great first step so the biggest thing what else so there's lots of things you do so many things one more step that we can offer someone yeah who might be going through this right now sometimes you need to not take yourself so seriously and i think that is and by when I say not take yourself seriously is not to listen to the imposter, not to listen to the voice that says that you're an imposter. Because actually, for me, it's more this external thing that's almost not a spirit, but it's like an energy mm. that it's me talking at me. But it's mm. the voice of lots of it's a pastiche of voices that I've heard. My father, my grandmother random so it's people not yours. it isn't but they've they've created a sense of me within mm-hmm. me that's that's internalized and then becomes externalized when i'm trying to sit down and write mm-hmm. or i'm going to a job and i'm like i've never done this i've never worked with this person before i've never done this specific job before as an example of like going to hungary and working as a director's assistant or whatever and you realize that you have what you need, but you don't always know that. So I think sometimes you really doubt that and it becomes terrifying. And then sometimes you actually don't have what you need necessarily, but you haven't asked the right questions. You're not there yet. So sometimes what I do is I just switch it up and I will blast some music. I will dance. I will do something to free, something that makes me happy that Mm. will completely free me that that I know makes me happy and no one else has to be around and so I do things like that like I mean you change I, the energy I like change just, the energy just shift the moment I throw on my favorite Pointer Sisters are my favorite I love the Pointer Sisters nice. until the day that I die oh so I will jam that on and I will dance sometimes for hours and, and I've said to Matt before I'm like I feel crazy I'm just like I feel like that's not right but it, it, it is because it what it does is it gets me out of that space. And what it does is it's an exercise in vanity. Sometimes I'll do it in front of a mirror. Sometimes I do things in front of the mirror to get out of my own head. That's right. Too. It's because not even it, the vanity. It's getting out of your own I head. I look a certain way in my head. Yes. And you don't and look that distorted. way in the mirror. It's yeah. so distorted. And sometimes I look in yeah. the mirror or take a photo. Yeah. This is my trick that I don't tell anyone. But sometimes I take a selfie to get out of my own head. And I, if you look, if anyone follows, almost everyone who listens to this follows me on Instagram, I think. So if you look at Instagram, there, there's a reason I take pictures the way I take them. Mm-hmm. Is it's, a, it's an exercise for the same message that I'm trying mm-hmm. to convey, which is 
to just be and to get out of your own get out of your own fucking way. Get out right? of your own fucking get way. Out of get your out of your fucking head. way. So get into your body. That's why yeah. there are not as many professional photos on my Instagram. Some people, that's the only critique I get. Yes. If I ever ask a friend, they'd yeah. be like, well, I just would love to see you with more professional photos. Yeah. But it's I'm realizing that I do it on purpose for this reason yeah. is to get out of my own way. Yes. And not worry so much about it having to look perfect. Yes. Or I'm in my head and I want to show myself what I really look like in that moment. And it's more for me. Yeah. To be like, hey, you don't look like the distorted, dis- whatever you're thinking. Yes. This is what's actually happening right now. Yeah. And it takes me out of my own head, which is kind of what, which so I love that you said that you dance in the mirror because totally. I really relate to that and I don't talk about that. Because yeah. as much as I like to talk about authenticity and being transparent and everything, there's still things that I realize I don't even know that I'm like keeping to myself. And this is one of those things. Well, because I mean, part of it is you're, the, the, the idea is you dance like nobody's watching. So the, yeah. you're doing that anyway. And it's, you, I think the good thing about this is that we can talk about that because we can share it with people. And, mm-hmm. and I know that sometimes I've questioned it. I still do it. But knowing that other people are feeling the same way and can be expressive and that it's permissible. Mm-hmm. for you to find another way because I also honestly that imposter drives me into negative behavior sometimes and that's also okay but I think like you were saying how does it show up I mean it shows up every day mm-hmm. I mean I'll get a call and I have to do this thing or I'll get a job offer and it's like oh my god I can't you know I'm I'm freaking out yeah. like approaching my my first season of, of, of actually writing I mean I've been in writers rooms for the past five years working as a writer's assistant, a script coordinator and like trying to break in. And now it's finally my moment. So of course that imposter is absolutely fully 100% present. And the thing is kind of okay with that because there is also a reason that it's there. Sometimes, you know, when we were talking, it is a check for me. It does push me to be better. Mm-hmm. It does force me to ask myself questions. And sometimes I listen to those questions. And sometimes I don't listen to those questions. My imposter will totally point things out and ask me things. And um, sometimes I, li- I listen to you know what it's, what it's saying. Sometimes I do. Because yeah. I'm like, what, there's a reason maybe I haven't done the work. Maybe I'm not ready for this yet. But how the, the question I ask myself is, I have a month before I enter that room. Well, um, before I fire up that Zoom call, you know, I need to prepare X, Y, and Z. And specifically. I think that there's a difference. You come and up I, with and a plan. I, I do think the imposter is the, the one that's not making all the sense. And I think that the person that's aware and is checking you and going, hey, make sure you're prepared may come from a similar place, but I don't think it's the same thing. I think that yeah, there's I, a... I guess I, I guess I, what I mean is they'll get you to the same place. So it's almost like the way that I look at it, and maybe it's not, but I see it now, I try to see it more as counterpoint. I like that. You know what I mean? I try mm-hmm. to look at it that way instead of saying... Leveraging It's it. not specifically my grandmother's voice. It's not specifically my father's voice. It doesn't have that... 
Mm-hmm. It doesn't have that specificity anymore. It, like I said, it's a pastiche of things. So it's this amorphous thing. But it does... I like that it's outside of me. Because then I can look at it. And mm. then I can pick it apart. And then I can say, yeah, I hear you. Okay, I try to translate it into something that's actionable. So it's useful now. It's useful, and I can use it as a tool, in fact. And it can motivate me instead of... And then over time, that voice has changed. I mean, that voice has fused into the, you know, you got this. Yeah. You know, it it does... it is kind of weirdly the same thing too. It grew out of that. I mean, Mm. you know, there are people that give up and there are people that fail and there are people that fail multiple times and get back on the horse and are wildly successful. There's just no right. There's no one way into this thing. And that's the other thing. I think the big realization that's helped me sort of deactivate the negative aspects and the shadow part of the imposter Mm. is that realizing that. So, Thank you. Yeah. That's great. I like that. I think that's a really good point to make. And I hadn't thought of it that way, that this, just like everything, has a dark and a light. Yeah. I mean, maybe, I, maybe you're right. I, I just, I just, I guess it's because no, we don't. it's a room of, it's, just, it's a room of, of different kinds of energy and, and that energy. I think it evolves. And, and evolves. I, if you work yes. with it and you made that point again and again yeah. through our conversation is that you've got to find ways to work with it. It's going to be there with you very much like fear. doesn't go away. Yeah, it's just totally. part of our You have to make makeup. your peace with it a little bit. Yeah. You have to figure out how to work with it. Yeah. And, and I, I love that. So you don't have you. to accept what it says specifically. You don't have to say, oh yeah, you're right. I'm not going to get that thing or whatever, even though, you know, you, that might be playing in the back of your mind, but sometimes it has things to say and and I'm open to it I listen to it and I think that takes evolving with it though yes it does yeah for sure I just want to make that point a hundred percent it's a it's a process and it is about being open and talking to people about it if you need help it's about getting help I mean I've you know been in therapy over lots of things and therapy helps a lot and and honestly just kind of continuing to show up to do the work that just I love keep showing to do. You've got to keep showing Quiets up. that voice too and shuts it down, honestly. I love that. Yeah, you've got to just keep doing it. Yeah. You're right. Action helps. And yeah. dancing is an action. Like, yeah, exactly. Action Getting helps. your body. It really does. Yeah. So, where can people find you? Yeah, I'm on social media. I'm pretty active. I'm on Instagram mostly. Okay. What's your I handle? mean, I use it's Greg Locklear on at, Instagram. At Greg Locklear. At Greg Locklear. You know, I think. For right now, you can look for my name and various shows and, and, and we'll uh, find you. And I'm embedded because right now I just I'm I'm not quite there yet. And I don't know if it's because That's of my imposter, are. but you know what I mean? I just I'm again it's I think, you know, for me the joy and so much of it is just like actually just doing the work and having the experience of doing I the work. I relate to but... that. And this is a simple question. Yeah. This is just where someone can, you know, yeah. check in with you and say, yeah. hey. I mean, you can say hey to me on Instagram for sure. I'm going to fire up on Twitter at some point. I, I've just been getting into trouble with my politics lately. So, well, but yeah, Instagram's the best way. And I'm always down to talk to people. So if anybody wants to reach out and say, hey, I understand. I liked something that I heard. I mean, I'm, Love so it. cool to talk about it. So 
That's great. Yeah. Thank you for this. This has been amazing sitting in your brand new home, <laughs> in your bed, drinking champagne. Yes, by the thank way. you for the champagne, by the way. Thank, thank you for the cocktail we had before this. <laughs> <laughs> the, there will be another. You guys will understand why this conversation was <laughs> a little tangential. But that, if you know me, that's how it goes. So thank you so much. This has been amazing. Thank you. I love it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Be Bold Begin. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so as not to miss an episode. So the best way to ensure you get all the new episodes is by subscribing. Help us build a positive community by joining the Facebook group, also called Be Bold Begin. I'll be checking it daily to answer and acknowledge any of your questions and comments. Stay positive and safe out there.